0: Love Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Abundant Solutions Hour. Our goal is to help others be more, do more, and have more. I'm your host, Gregory Turner.
1: And I'm your co host, Brian J. Henderson.
0: Brian, I tell you what, we're gonna have an awesome, awesome show tonight. It's gonna be a serious show. We're gonna talk about some things that a lot of people in this country are a little afraid to talk about, Brian. Well, what better time than to have a show like we're going to have tonight? I know you're, you're chomping at the bits, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that laugh tells it all. That's telling the story. But, Brian, you know what? Our guest tonight, not only is she smart, talented, and beautiful, the things in the books that she's writing about in her life, I think she's going to steal the spotlight from uh, someone that was Supposed to be a candidate for VP. I think she's going to steal the spotlight tonight.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: you miss Greg. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm
0: just telling the truth. You, you, you've seen, you've gone on her website. You've mm-hmm. seen her. You've read some of the things that she's doing. She's doing some awesome, awesome things. And Brian, she uh, wrote a book with Billy D. Williams.
1: Yes. Yes. You know the most compelling thing about her story and we'll talk about we're going to have her talk about it as well is if, you, if you've if you gone on her website and we'll give you that pretty soon so you can check out you know a little bit more about her if you just listen to her story as a youth it's just like wow you know yes. but you know it's also and, and I'm trying to find a word to say this it's so commonplace now that you see this yes You know, that you wouldn't believe the struggle and the strife and the things that people had to go through just to endure their version of love. Yes. You know, and I'm not going to give you that much more, but I'm I'm going to let her talk about it. (laughs) Tonight's guest is Miss Elizabeth Adkins. And the thing that's compelling about her is that she lost 100 pounds virtually a whole person, (laughs) you know, and um, she serves as a race expert, and she has a uh, best-selling novel called White Chocolate, and has a master's from Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, and she's also earned her bachelor's in English literature from the University of Michigan, so she's well-versed in the English language, and also in journalism, where she's also written books. She has about ten books right now that have been published in the New York Times, and was also nominated for the Pulitzer Prize for her newspaper articles on race. And she's also an expert on multiracial identity mm. and interracial families. And we'd like to introduce to you all, Miss Elizabeth Atkins. Are you there, ma'am? I'm here. Welcome, Hi, to the how, are yeah.
2: I'm, how are you? Yeah. I'm. How you? Yeah, thank you so
0: much for agreeing to come on the show.
2: Oh, thank you so much. It's just amazing when you hear someone describe you. <laughs> You're like, "What are they talking about?"
0: <laughs> that's Brian. I told you he he's good at he's good at doing that, and that's what I mean. He he can he can bring it out. But you know what? He did everything he said was the truth.
2: It was. The oh, truth. thank you, you.
0: You know, you've been blessed with both sides.
2: I have, and that's why I love the name of your show so much, because I am in, I consider myself abundantly blessed every single day, and it's because I'm half black and half white, and I live in both worlds, and I love that I celebrate, I embrace, and I educate and I entertain at the same time, so my whole purpose and passion in life being a biracial woman is to promote human harmony through my writing and speaking.
0: Awesome. You know, when you were a little girl and you were growing up, and, you know, when you're in elementary school, everybody's getting along. But when you start going to middle school and junior high and high school, one side is kind of pulling at you a little bit more than the other. And, and, you know, they they want one side to be a little bit more dominant than the other side. Did you have to deal with that?
2: Yeah, that's really true. When I got to middle school and high school, that's where the issues arose. And really when it was time to start dating, when I realized I got that slap in the face of reality when young men would like me, but then all of a sudden they'd find out that I'm half black and they'd suddenly find me unacceptable or use racial slurs to describe my family members. It was really outrageous, but it taught me that people can like me on the surface, but then once race factors in, suddenly I'm unacceptable. Mm -hmm. It works two ways. That's with some white people and some black people. Their behavior changes 180 degrees when they find out, and it can be for better or worse. Mm -hmm. It's really wild. (laughs) So what that does is it shows me how, how, ambiguous race is because they can't see it on me it's just a you look at my picture you see my blonde hair you see i I look white to most people so they can't see race but when they hear black their mind brings up all these stereotypes and ideas that suddenly create this mental block Mm. yes So it's my purpose and passion to use writing and speaking to challenge people on that. Open their minds and really remind don't judge a book by its cover because you never know who you're talking to. The white woman that you're talking to in line at the restaurant might actually be a black woman. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you no, know, Elizabeth, it's funny because I myself actually experienced the same type of uh, racism that you experienced. Now, my mother and father are both black, but my stepmother was white. Oh. And I grew up with, you know, I lived with my stepmother and my father for a number of years, and oh. I would always get that when I would go to the grocery stores, you know, and as I was reading your story, it made me think about it. You said how when you would go around with your aunt and uncle, people would right. say those two little, you know, white girls with those with that black family. Uh and I would get some of the same thing when I was at the grocery store, and I'd be putting stuff in the basket, and people would ask me, you know, who that was, and sometimes I used to get embarrassed by it because, you know, my friends, well, some of people who, who, you know, you know how it is when you're young, your friends pick at you and so forth, and they would say, oh, you got a white mama. And so I used to be so, you know, afraid of losing my friends, I would tell everybody that she was the maid. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh!
1: and one day she found out and she was so upset with me and yes. I was like you're going to make me lose all of my friends because they don't like me because of you and so you know what I mean and so we we experienced a similar type of you know racism but it was racism nonetheless
3: right you know?
1: and you know it's really weird when you when you, you know because I guess in my case well, no, I guess in your case as well. I experienced racism from the both sides, people that were saying that, you know, hey, you like white people and they don't like you, so you, you know, you know what I mean?
2: Yes. Let's see, when you experience all these different angles of race, it shows you the, the ambiguousness of it and how ridiculous it is. I mean, what does it matter, but it does matter, and when you see people change right in front of you, it, it shows you that race is a sociopolitical construct that's used to divide and conquer.
1: Mm. It, it, Say that again. <laughs> race is
2: a sociopolitical construct that's used to divide and conquer. If you do any study of American history,
3: mm. and really many
2: global histories, If you do any studies of American history, you will see that race is not biological. It's it's a category. And even back in slavery, that's when all of this began, they had census takers who would actually look at people and decide, okay, they're a quadroon, they're an octoroon, they're a mulatto, to Mm -hmm. decide what percentage of black blood one has to determine a census count. Everyone was African-American if you were any of those categories, but they were all used to keep people down, to keep a lower class, to keep a slavery class, to keep a group of people inferior, divided. You know,
1: and you talk about the economical, and political aspirations that people had that were contributed to race. The one thing that comes to mind is the Three-Fifths Compromise. Hmm. You know, and, and so when you said that, when you start talking about the rooms and the octroons, that all had a political edge as well because they, you know, based on the amount or percentage of black you were, that also gave certain areas representation
4: mm-hmm.
1: or black thereof of representation.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, yes, you're absolutely right. And even now today, a lot of people use it for, for socioeconomic and political aspirations. I mean, when you have – uh, like, especially in this, this year's presidential race, you know, both sides have used race as a factor, you know. And so when you have something like that, it's not necessarily saying that both sides have used it as a negative or a plus. It's just the fact that, that it has been used, where race should not really be a deciding factor in a in a race to see who can – I say race can't be used in the race, right
2: <laughs> right <laughs> uh, but
1: to be used in a in something as so critical as saying who will decide who will run the country
2: right, right huh well, unfortunately socio political and economic factors break down oftentimes along racial lines
4: mm-hmm. and
1: so
2: when we talk about race. We're often talking about class. Yeah. We're often talking about socioeconomic status. And sometimes race enables us to visualize problems um, mm. in a racial way. Um, and so... It's really difficult to separate them, and it takes extremely strong consciousness and effort on our own part to realize that we're all the same. Geneticists say that humans are 99.99% the same. Whether you're from the continent of Africa, the continent of Asia, the continent of Australia, we're all 99.99% the same. Mm -hmm. So think about that. What makes us different? A little bit of pigment on our skin and our culture, the way we're raised. Our cultural beliefs, practices, our religious beliefs, that's what makes us different. But at the core, we all have red blood. We all feel sad and happy. We all have to eat and drink water to stay alive. We all have to sleep. We're really all the same, and that... As a mother, that's how I teach my son, who's 10, about race. I show him how much we are the same. When he has dinner at his grandparents' house, they're African-American, and when he has dinner at his friend's house and they're Caucasian, I say, what's the difference between dinner at their house and dinner at the other house? And he says, what was served? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just a family dinner. One's white, one's black, but it's the same thing. It's love, it's fun, and it's good food. Yeah. Well, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, I am I'm made my point.
0: <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to, since you were talking about family, I wanted to talk with you about your parents and, you know, and, and, and how love was colorblind and the courage that they had back in the 60s. Now, we're talking about the 60s. We're talking about the 60s, and, you know, back then uh, a lot of people in the church and religious uh, people, they didn't take to that, you know, so well. And then you had um, family members, and then you had the community. I mean, it was just a lot of criticism. How were your parents able to make it?
2: Well, my father was a Catholic priest. He was 44, and it was the mid-1960s. He was disillusioned with the church on many levels. He saw pedophilia, he saw homosexuality, he saw alcoholism, he saw heterosexual affairs, he saw a whole lot of things that he chronicled in his journals, many of which have now um, come to the forefront with all the lawsuits against the church regarding sexual abuse and such. But back then it was kept very quiet and he was Essentially, told he was crazy when he tried to report different things. So he was, in, and at the same time that this, this disillusionment occurred, he was extremely lonely. He wanted to marry and have children and feel fulfilled. And the vow of celibacy was a problem. Um, it's unnatural, and so he suffered extreme guilt over feeling this basic human emotion, wanting the love of a woman. And so at the same time, my mother, she was 19, she's African American, she was, became his friend and they developed a friendship and she was saying, no, Father Atkins, you can't leave the church. That just doesn't happen. And he's saying, yes, I want to leave and start a new life. And they fell in love and it was a beautiful love connection that they made. And the, the, the bishop condemned them to hell, saying you're excommunicated. Um, The community condemned their relationship, saying it wouldn't last 24 hours. My father's family, um, my my grandmother, I think she was more hurt by the fact that he was leaving the church than the racial factor, but she was extremely – she had a hard time dealing with it and basically – cut him out for a while, Um, and so my mother's family was extremely suspicious of what does this older white man want with our daughter, and not to mention, the backdrop of this was the civil rights movement, where it was still illegal in 16 states for interracial couples to marry, so they decided to marry, they were in love, they saw qualities in each other that they knew they could build a beautiful long-term life together. And so they did. And I was born right before the 67 riots. Therefore, I see myself as a symbol of their colorblind love and racial unity. And my father actually baptized me himself in the hospital, which caused quite a stir with the nurses. (laughs) They're like, Father Atkins, you can't baptize your own baby. (laughs) You're supposed to have a baby. (laughs) So... They play they were you know they saw the humorous side of how the world was reacting to their story, but he held me up in the hospital room and said, "God, please make Elizabeth the princess of peace so that she can have the power and the vision to bring people together across these warring racial lines." and he never told me that, but I read about it in his journals when I was thirty five that was six years ago and i realized i'm doing that i had written three novels with that very mission to showcase love overcoming hate with racial themes and i'm doing that through my speaking i'm doing that through my lifestyle i'm doing that through my journalism the articles that i write and i'm really a princess of peace on many, many levels, and it became a self-fulfilling prophecy for me. So I view the, the courage and the power of my parents' union is manifest in the work that I do every day to bring people together. Awesome.
1: Yes. Well, you know, you've talked about, um, as a youth, how difficult it was to have relationships. Because when people found out about, you know, your family and your background and your history, well, what about when you became an adult? Did, did they treat you the same type of way, like when friends would find out, hey, you know, your mom's black and your dad's white? You know, did they treat you in a different way, or did you were you denied any, you know, anything at all? Hmm. Um, I think that
2: because I have such a gentle spirit, and people can sense that I have a positive motive in everything that I do. I think that the world has responded accordingly. But I have had some situations and it's usually when people misinterpret. For example, once I was I was with my ex-husband in Florida. We were at a resort at brunch and there was a, a white man in the next booth glaring at me like i was the most disgusting thing he'd ever seen and 10 minutes later out by the pool there were these young african-american men and women they were dressed really chic and kind of hip-hop and cool and there was one woman glaring at me like i was the most disgusting thing she'd ever seen so within a 10 minute span Here's a white man and a black woman thinking, we're an interracial couple. They're thinking, there's a white woman with a black man, and they're projecting with their eyes this horrible hatred and disgust. And they don't know the truth that I'm half black as well, and so they're basing their hatred on a misunderstanding. Um, And that that moment, I just cried. I was like, wow, why are people so hateful i mean if their eyes are saying that to me what would their words or actions say to me um but to my benefit i think many people are really fascinated by the whole mixed race idea and because i'm so far off the spectrum um that i think People kind of embrace me out of curiosity to <laughs> see wow what's what's up with this what's this all about? what is she all you know let me let me get to know her and see how she views the world and it's easy because I'm always talking about it on the radio or on t v or in a book or a lecture, so it's no secret, but yes, people have treated me differently oftentimes if I meet african Americans. And they think I'm white, something suddenly changes when they discover I'm black. <laughs> it's really wild, I mean, just sort of a distance or a suspicion or just a coolness, not necessarily negative, it's just how that guard we have up when we meet uh strangers and then all of a sudden, oh, she's one of us, and I'm welcomed with open arms. It's really fascinating
4: to see that
1: you know it's funny because that was my next question
3: <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> what you
1: know, I was going to ask you so how do people actually treat you once they find out like as far as African-Americans or as far as uh, non-African-Americans how do they treat you when they find out that you're a, a product of a biracial family it,
2: how do um, non-African-Americans treat me yes uh, well Sometimes there's an equal amount of intrigue, and fortunately we live in a time when many people have the ability to judge you based on your abilities and your talents and not your um, race. And so people, for example, in business settings where, where I'm the speaker or I'm the um, ghostwriter, or I'm their writing coach, many times they treat me with absolute respect based on my work record my accomplishments the way i present myself so fortunately many people have the ability black or white to view me as a professional intelligent person and they're seeing my work and my brain not my skin or the hidden part of my heritage Hmm. Um, But I have had some situations uh, that were disturbing, especially while dating. Um, I was doing a writing workshop, and a young man came up to me. He said, "Um, I really was thinking about asking you out on a date. When you started talking about being biracial, I really wondered, do I want to go out with somebody like that? Mm. And I thought, oh, okay, okay. Well, I could get an attitude and I could tell somebody off, but I choose not to go that route. Instead, I just open up a conversation and say, wow, this is cool. You're really, this is a great chance for you to analyze your racial perspective. You know, what's different about me now than 10 minutes ago before I started talking about being biracial? So, what it does is it forces a person to think. And the answer is
0: nothing's
2: different about me. This is
0: me. Mm. Elizabeth, we have some we have some callers on callers. Please hold oh. on. We're going to come to you in just a second. But I wanted to say this about uh, in America. I'll say this. Uh, a lot of people probably wouldn't say this, but in this country, you're considered black if you have one percent, one percent of your blood. You're considered black.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: How crazy is that? Who, <laughs> so, I mean, who who came up with this? So does your the blood slave? have to be pure to be white?
2: It's the slave the slave owners came up with that so they could keep control of their stock of people, which is mm-hmm. disgusting.
4: Yeah, but that's
2: why. So even if if I were, that's why I was so fascinated with Alex Haley's book Queen. And also, I wrote my book, Dark Secret, about someone who's passing for white, yes. and she marries into a white aristocratic family that still lives on a plantation in Virginia. And she knows if she had lived there a couple hundred years ago, she would be a slave, not the woman wearing diamonds and having a big fancy wedding marrying the son. So I, I, it's fascinating because I would have been a slave. And it wasn't about what color you are. It was about what the fact that you had one drop, one drop rule of black blood. It's ridiculous. It's stupid.
0: Yes. I tell you, it, it's tough. We have a young lady in the chat room. Uh, she says that uh, her son has a uh, good mix of friends, and they, they live in a mixed area. And mm-hmm. She's kind of concerned sometimes because uh, of the way – That he may have experienced racism. Oh, Uh, yeah, yeah. And and she said one of them, uh, one of the kid's friend uh, has a Confederate flag. So she's a little bit, she's a little bit uh, worried about that at this point. What would you, what kind of uh, advice would you give her? Uh,
2: How old is the child?
0: I'm not sure. I think he's probably in anywhere from ten to twelve. I believe.
2: Oh. Well, if a child had a Confederate flag hanging up in their bedroom and my child told me about it, I wouldn't let him go there anymore. Mm -hmm. I I think that's a reflection of someone's and a family's racial beliefs, and uh, I wouldn't be comfortable with my child being at their home. But I would also use it as an opportunity to teach that there are symbols in America symbols that represent bad things and if you talk to the people who are flaunting those symbols they won't think it's bad it's a symbol of pride or territorial beliefs but um and if you try to convince them that they're wrong sometimes it's pretty pointless so you have to make decisions based on the well-being of yourself and your child And I just would say that's not really something we want to endorse or be around.
1: Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, I'm going to ask you a question, and then I'm going to uh, let you answer, and then I'm going to go to the callers and present them with the same type of question. Or let them ask a question if they have one. Okay. But the question that I have is, do you think that the world is ready for – interracial marriage as a whole? I mean, do you think that, well, I won't say the world, let's say America. Do you think America is actually ready for it? Because in some places they are, but for the most part, we have a lot of people who still have issues with it.
2: Mm -hmm. I think that there's power in numbers, and since the civil rights movement, interracial marriages have quintupled. That's multiplied by five. So in many parts of the country, even places you wouldn't expect to see interracial couples in mass, they're there. And the more you see, the more you realize you have to just accept it. Um, So I do believe we're ready. I think the fact that our presidential candidate, Barack Obama, is biracial, the product of a black man, an African man, and a white woman, shows that we are absolutely ready to embrace and celebrate there are people who don't who aren't ready for that but there are people who aren't ready for a lot of stuff we're making progress we're moving forward and it's a beautiful thing so i absolutely believe we're ready the world is ready if you take any kind of global perspective the numbers of marriages between people from other countries have increased as well because Of technology transportation studying abroad working abroad uh, international companies so we're becoming not just the American melting pot but the global melting pot I meet people all the time who are half Nigerian and half Danish or half Australian and half Japanese I mean I meet them all the time and it's happening more and more So, yeah, I mean, I'm nope. not saying racism isn't there. It's there, but more and more people are just viewing you're human, I'm human. I mean, look at the New York Times uh, wedding page. If you see the, they have that really cool style section where they showcase weddings. More and more, it's, it's people of different races, people from different countries, people from different religions. It's phenomenal. It's beautiful, so the more we celebrate that, the less the, the naysayers have to say, the less power they have.
1: Wow. All right. Well, I'm going to go to our caller here. Okay. Have, on the line, and this caller is calling from the 864 area code. Okay. Caller, are you there? Yes. All right. Do you have a question or a comment, or would you like to respond to the earlier question about uh, do you think America is ready for interracial marriage?
4: Um, I agree uh, with Elizabeth. I think that it has, you know, increased more and more over the years, so I I can see it happening. You know, you're going to have the people that have a problem with it, but then you're going to have, you know, those people who are doing it more and more. So I don't have a problem with it or see too much of a problem besides those people that are stuck in their ways as far as, you know, having race as an issue. Hmm.
0: (laughs) You. <laughs> well, caller, let me let, let me let me say this. I have a question for the caller. Do you think it's the old diehard? And when I say diehard, the old old older people, uh, that old belief that black is wrong and white is right. Now you have the younger generation that are hanging more and more together. You see it all the time. You see black and white, different races together more so now than ever before. And the older people, those
4: ways that they used to teach their children, they can't do that anymore. Would you agree? Um, it's not really. I think I don't really think is that they can't do it. It's just I think we're in a different different day and time. You still have those families that have issues with blacks, and you still have those families that might have issues with whites. It's just all in the way that those families, you know. Raise their kids and grandkids, and and how they view things. Um, I don't really see race as being too much of an issue, as it is, you know, as it was back in the day, as it, you know, opposed to now. But you know, there are still issues out there, and with the president, ob you know, well, President candidate Obama running, a lot of people are not looking at the message that he's trying to portray as far as what he wants to do as a president, because they can't get past him being black versus him being biracial or versus what he's trying to do for the nation in, you know, in itself. Wow. Elizabeth, what say you?
2: Well, I think that, um, I agree with the caller and, but let's not forget there are some black people who oppose interracial marriage.
0: Yeah, so right. I say that too. Yeah, you
2: know, with black men on this downtown walking around, and women will say things, mean things, to <laughs> for an interracial couple. And I mean, it doesn't even have to be words; it can be a look. It's just mad, and it's disapproving, and it's it shows in their eyes that they think that race mixing and romance is wrong. So the opposition comes from multiple sides, and there's reasons for it. They can say, you know, citing the statistics about black men, um, that man should be with an African-American woman. Um, you know, there's all that that argument. But um, I just really think that we show by example and – I was on the Amanda Lewis show, among many shows I've been on, including Montel and Oprah and uh, recently the um, Tyra Banks show. But when I was on the Ananda Lewis show, there was a man who was white. His sister had a biracial baby. He refused to touch the child. Beautiful little baby. Wow. He refused to have anything to do with his child. So we all got on the show, and I'm talking about my story, and somehow something in that man melted. It melted. His hate just melted away while we were there. And he took the baby. He embraced the baby. He apologized for his hateful ways, and he realized he was wrong. So I think that when you put it in someone's face and you say, you know look here's a child this is a child of love two races yes but this is a human being and it's carrying part of your blood some you can't argue with that and it's very powerful so one by one when people have that personal experience that is the power of change one by one that one man now he's gonna tell everybody it was on T V but he's gonna tell people about his transformation and it may open their eyes. And mm-hmm. so I think that personal interaction is where the power lies.
4: I have um a question. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um uh in your years of uh I guess getting into your teenage years or your dating years, did you ever meet any African-American men that had the, I guess you could say, quote-unquote, white woman preference, and then they went after you because they, you know, had the perception that you were, you know, of Caucasian descent, but then once they got to know you or, you know, what have you, they found out that you were biracial?
2: Oh, huh. Well, I had one black man say he would never date me because he didn't want anyone to think he was with a white woman. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, most, mostly I think they liked that light skin long hair thing.
4: Yeah. Like
2: that vixen look.
4: Mm-hmm. But
2: I'm so far at the end of the spectrum uh, that they had that look-what-I-got kind of pride. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Do you think that's how a lot of um, the African-American men that now, like personally, like I can't sit here and say, I, well, I, I don't do the dirty looks, but it it is the kind of question that, you know, that goes in the back of my mind, like, you know, this white man and this white woman, like how did they get together? You know, is it this, you know, quote-unquote white woman preference? Because I can see... I think in this day and time, when it comes to a lot of African-American men, they are going for or they're wanting those light-skinned women or those, long, you know, long-haired women. They put you in the mind frame of not being really per se an African-American woman. And, uh, you know, it, it it's kind of, you know, difficult because I am a dark-skinned sister, but then you have to look at that person and kind of figure out, you know, there's something I think that's it's out of them that's messed up. Not you know, the preference of me being the darkest sister and them not wanting me.
2: Mm.
4: Does that make sense?
2: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> absolutely. Oh. Definitely. Um I I think that they like they they were fascinated by my personality. Um mm. they might have liked my look to start with, but many men have told me that it's my personality that makes them stay. Mm. You know what I mean? Right. That matters more than anything. So, I mean, anybody can be pretty, but if they're not nice, and if they don't have the right perspective or humility. But, you know, there's a
4: lot of men that will actually stay with a woman that's not nice, but consider her to be very attractive, and that's the only reason that they're with them. Oh. like I was looking at something on the internet today, and sad to say, it was two you know African American guys. Um, one was you know a lighter skin color, but the other one was dark, and he was like, um, "We don't date dark, butts, meaning dark skinned sisters." And I'm thinking, like, okay, where where's the logic in that?
2: Well, so, a lot of people judge, everybody. right? And uh, um, that's too bad, but we do still
4: live in that world. Right? Yeah. Let
0: me, let me, Especially, me, you know, from your own, you know. Well, let me let me uh, call mm-hmm. caller and Elizabeth uh, uh, Brian. I think they were born and they forgot all about. We were on the show, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I, wanted, I wanted to I want to say this. It, it, it's it's almost like I don't know if you guys saw the baby doll test. They had the little black kids look at the baby doll. And they were asked the question, which one was better? do you think that's the same way that um, grown men, do you think they think the same way as the the kids?
2: Oh, I do, definitely. But there are certain standards of beauty that are upheld and celebrated, and fortunately we've had a big diversity of, of skin colors, hair textures, eye colors, facial features, that have changed what our standard of beauty is over the past decade or two, but that Barbie doll beauty remains the standard, whether black or white. If you look at um, many black women who are considered beautiful people, they really look like a Barbie doll with, with dark skin. So they still have that same long hair, and those keen features um, that Barbie (laughs) has. um, But the same thing holds true for white women. That standard of beauty is the Barbie-esque kind of look. Um, So it's still there, and people have been socialized their whole life to believe that that's what beauty is. But fortunately, we've progressed. So many different hairstyles are considered beautiful and all kinds of facial features are considered beautiful. If you if you read Essence magazine, you'll see that we've come a long way in defining what standards of beauty are, yeah. and that's a good thing. But, yes, absolutely, many men still hold that Barbie-esque standard of beauty in their head, and that's what they go after.
4: Well, and we that's didn't... what
2: we try to be so that they can conform and attract the man.
0: Yes. Yeah. Elizabeth, you when you speak and if you go on your website elizabethadams.com, you can see we can see the strength and power in you. But oh, where okay. where did where did you get this strength? And 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 the reason I'm bringing this up is because you were on Oprah and you lost 100 pounds.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Where do you find that drive to continue doing what you're doing, or or do you think it's because of your tough skin that you had to have, whether you wanted it or not? You had to have that tough skin growing up as a biracial.
2: Oh, wow. Um, where does it come from? I don't know. I mean, I stayed up at my computer till 1 a.m. last night working, and I've been at it all day, and, I just feel driven by something greater than myself, just like Barack Obama is driven by something greater than himself. And I really feel that there's meaning in my life, meaning and responsibility to use my gifts to help people. And I do that through writing and speaking. And initially I did not like to talk about this. I was terrified, but it was in the University of Michigan when I was having sort of racial identity chaos But I went to a meeting of mixed-race students because there was a lot of turbulence on campus. And for the first time, being amongst other mixed-race students, I felt at home. Now, I'll feel completely at home in an African-American home, conference, party, wedding, wherever I am. I feel at home, but people always look at me and sometimes even ask, well, why are you here? So I'm always reminded that I look different than everybody else, even if, though inside I feel like I belong. In that meeting with other mixed-race students, it was so therapeutic I realized if I can write about this and speak about this, I can help other people who are dealing with what I'm going through.
4: Mm. So
2: that's when I changed my major to become an English major and journalism, work at the campus newspaper, and at the same time, I was going through this racial identity change, transformation, and then I went to Columbia and did my master's thesis on being biracial. And I just further and further immersed in this material. And with that, I drew strength from that immersion. And as a result, I was hired at the Detroit News covering race relations, and I started writing articles that were making an impact on the community dialogue about race which was so amazing and powerful. And from that I said, I'm going to write a book. I'm not a tragic mulatto. I'm not Sarah Jane, an imitation of life. I'm a proud woman who is using her position and her power to make change through writing and speaking. And so it just continued. White Chocolate is about a TV reporter who uses her power to fight racism. It's a steamy love story. It's entertaining, but you're being educated at the same time to learn about race in many different dimensions. And then Dark Secret, which is about to go into a second printing, and my agent is shopping the film rights in Hollywood right now. Dark Secret is about a woman who is actually passing for white. A lot of people say you could pass for white. Do you ever? No, but... It made me think about it. So it's a very sexy, scandalous story about a woman passing for white. Um, And I'm going to have copies available very soon on my website. There's two sisters, one's white-looking and one's sort of caramel-colored. And they both have a black mother and a white father. Well, the white-looking daughter runs off to New York, gets engaged to the southern aristocrat's son, lives the glamorous life, but their black mother is dying. And the only person who can save her is the white-looking sister by a kidney. But, of course, she's not going to donate a kidney because it would give up her identity and her white family would disown her, and she'd lose that life of luxury. So a huge scandal explodes from there. And then my third book is about somebody who doesn't know what her mix is. Twilight, I wrote with Billy D. Williams. Another steamy, sexy novel takes place in Brazil and L.A., and here's this powerful woman judge who discovers she's half black. She's 36 and finds out she's half black. And so her identity is just shattered. Who am I? What am I? I'm half black, and I've gone my whole life not knowing that. What does it mean? Mm. So I take all these awesome stories and raise these questions to make the reader really think about race and its meaning and its power. And so in my lectures as a diversity speaker, when I go in front of a crowd, it's really fun because they look at me, they assume I'm white, and I ask them questions like, who am I, where do I live, You know, where did I go to school, what's my religion, what's my race, and they get it all wrong. They make all kinds of assumptions that are all wrong. Mm -hmm. And then I show my video that's on my website, elizabethadkins.com, and they see, wow, her mother's black, her father was white, this is what she does, and it opens their mind, and it shows don't judge a book by its cover. You never know who you're talking to. And same with weight. They see me as a super fit person in a sleek suit or little dress now, but then they see the picture of me when I was on Oprah. The before and after pictures when I weighed two hundred and forty two pounds. <laughs> so you never know, that thin person that you're making a fat joke to might have been fat one day. Mm-hmm. And you won't find your joke very funny. <laughs> 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 So I, I I like I use myself. That's where my power comes from. But I don't know. It, it's being driven by a higher calling. In fact, when I get in front of a group, it's not me talking. You can say it's God. You can say it's some divine energy. But it's it's another energy coming through me to share a message.
0: Awesome. I'm a
2: tool. Just like I think Barack Obama is a tool. He's just a tool of destiny or whatever the divine plan is for America, to show that we're ready.
1: Awesome. Awesome. I want to take this opportunity to go to the caller from the 804 area code. Caller, are you there?
4: Yeah, I'm here.
1: Welcome to the Abundant Solutions How. Do you have a question or comment for Ms. Elizabeth Atkins?
4: Yes. Um, I've been enjoying it so um and I did take a chance to uh, read on your website um, about your weight loss. And first, I'd like to congratulate you. That's an amazing piece. Um But I wanted to know how long did it take you to lose your weight, and what kept you motivated throughout the whole thing?
2: It took a year. I was I was actually pregnant when I was really that large, and my son was almost 11 pounds.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: But after he was born. The 11 pounds and a few more came off, but that was it. Mm -hmm. And so what motivated me? I felt awful. I was enormous. And my first book, White Chocolate, was coming out three months later. Mm -hmm. So I said, I am not going to sit up in borders looking like this (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) feeling like this for a book signing. So that was a huge motivator. Um, But at the same time, I, I didn't feel healthy. I was worried that I had some kind of borderline gestational diabetes um, because that's closely linked to huge weight gain in pregnancy. And I didn't want to be diabetic. Um, So I started walking. And I had a C-section, so I couldn't exercise at the beginning because that had to heal first. So I was just really diligent about portion control And I would eat chocolate now and then. I would just really cut back on portion sizes. And then I started walking. And as the weight came off, I started running. I got one of those baby joggers. So my son, I pushed him and ran. And then I did strength training, just some dumbbells in the living room. Because when you build the muscle at the same time as you're burning fat, you don't get that flabby, hanging skin. You get firmness. And that, as a result, I'm really solid now. I'm not. Um, I'm really solid because I've built a lot of muscle. So when people ask me how'd you do it, how'd you lose the weight, I always say nobody wants to hear the real way. Everybody wants a magic pill or a yeah. surgery or some center you attended. No, it's all about exercise and eating healthy. That's it. It's it's just the old-fashioned. Eat lots of salad, fruits, vegetables, baked fish, baked chicken, baked turkey, um, lots of you know whole grains, rice, oatmeal, that kind of thing. I don't eat any fried foods. I very, very rarely eat sugary stuff. Like over Labor Day I had a Dairy Queen Sunday and it was so good. But I had not had ice cream in one year. I just, it makes me feel bad, it makes me feel out of whack, and I love feeling really good. People can't guess my age, they often guess I'm 10 years younger than I really am because of my lifestyle, so that keeps me motivated. Another thing as you get older, health. Health is an amazing motivator, more so than vanity, I don't want to have high blood pressure. I don't want diabetes. I don't want any of those other issues that come along with weight. I want to be healthy. I want to live a long time. I want to maintain this kind of energy that keeps me going on turbocharge from dawn until one o'clock at night. I love that. That's what motivates me. And what motivates me as well, caller, I don't know your name, but is is not wanting to feel bad, because when I was in the throes of eating too much and just feeling heavy and sluggish, I hated that feeling. I hated it, and I never want to go back to that. So once you start to feel great, that's motivation in itself, not to mention the fact that you can wear a bathing suit and feel great. And the freedom of not even thinking about it, the self-consciousness goes away. You just walk on the beach and you just, you don't think about it. You're there to have fun. But when you're fat, all you think about is, oh, my God, I must look horrible in this bathing suit. Freedom, that's the best. Freedom to wear what you want, do what you want, and to feel released from that prison of fat.
1: All right, all right. We're going to go to one more caller. We've got about five minutes left in the show,
0: but to okay. we'll
1: the caller from the three four seven area code. Caller, are you there?
3: Yes, I am. Good evening. My name is Benny. How are you doing? Hello. Hey. Very good. Um, one excellent show, excellent show. I love your guests on the show, and I just had one um um question. Being able to experience both sides, as they would say. Uh, has it given you a different perspective of how the world works and a la Obama, you know what I mean? Because it's amazing how, you know, he's part black and he's part white, and most people only talk about the black side of him. Mm -hmm. He's just just as white as he is black, but, you know, Mm -hmm. but because differentiation and, you know, how some biracial people look more the other side than that side, how they treat him, but he's the African-American presidential candidate versus, you know, this biracial individual. Has it given you a different perspective and made you more sensitive to individuals on both sides of the coin?
2: Oh, absolutely. And what it's taught me is to accept people, welcome people, not based on what they look like, but how they present to me. I feel their spirit as opposed to looking and evaluating them based on their color, If I get a good vibe from someone, or if I get a bad vibe from someone, I know that good and bad come in all colors. Interestingly, I like to be like Barack Obama was when he accepted his nomination. He did not talk about race. He showed. He showed us. He didn't tell. He showed us. By showing that video of his family and all those pictures of his grandparents and his mother And him, he showed us the power. They were all very loving pictures. He didn't have to talk about it. He showed it. And because he didn't talk about it, it sort of made us accept him based on his ideas, his values, his skills. And that's what it's all about for all of us, to accept each other Based on what we bring to the table, whether it's our talent or our abilities or our skills, our personality, um, that's how it should be. His presentation forced us to accept him that
3: way. and that's a very powerful. Thing. Thank you very much, so very, very powerful. excellent guest
2: Thank you. Thank you so much., really,
0: did you have another, did you have
2: another question for?
0: Her?
3: Well, I know you only have three minutes. You know me; I'll start talking, and you know I can't <laughs> stop.
0: We have we have two minutes. I'm sure you can sneak another one in.
3: No, I do. Okay, well, uh, you know me because you know <laughs> I meant to call in earlier, but I, I, things were stopping me from calling in yeah, because I, I just find it I find it very intriguing when I see you know because you know me being a dark skinned guy, and you know a lot of women that have even came into my life have been biracial, and and I had a different experience with them versus. You know, non-biracial people, and it tend to be a little bit more sensitive, a little bit more eye-opening, and a little bit – but no matter what, I think, as you said early in the conversation, you know, you know if you drop one, one grain of dirt into clean water, it's not the whole water contaminated – yeah. And, and it makes a sense, just like, you know, when black, and they tend to, if you got a little black, and you're black no matter what, how you look at it. So I just find it intriguing to see her coming from this aspect of it and being able to experience what she experienced. And the question I want to ask you, which, do you relate to both sides of your heritage, or do you find yourself just, I we won't say nothing to nobody, but do you find yourself more comfortable with, one side or other.
2: Nope. I relate to both. I accept people as people. If they're nice to me and they show love to me, I love them back. If they don't, then I don't. So, no, I feel comfortable with both sides. I feel comfortable with everybody, all races, religions. It's all about how you treat me and I'll treat you back. And I, I don't assume that because you're a certain race you're going to treat me a certain way. I just, I I exude positive energy, and what that does is come back to me. That positive energy sort of reflects from other people back to me. So you get what you give, and I give love and peace and serenity and goodwill, and it comes back to me from all people.
3: Wow, and I feel those positive vibrations. All right, Greg, I see you got like 52 seconds left, so let me get off this phone because you know me, I won't stop talking. (laughs) All right. But thank you Uh, for allowing me to ask a question.
1: Thank you. No problem.
3: Thanks for having me. Have a good one. Bye bye.
1: I want to close out the show by saying we have to get to that point that Dr. Martin Luther King talked about where we are judged by not the color of our skin, but the content of our character. And we have to also get to the point where we don't judge people based on just face value. We have to get to know the person inside of you. You know. With that being said, you've been listening to the Abundant Solutions Hour. We thank our guests for coming on with us tonight. Be sure you go check our website out, elizabethatkins.com. And i like to thank you, and good evening, and God bless you. Thank you.
4: Thank you. Thank you.